at work and you've just written a massive report on some essential project of the business, you have done all the heavy lifting to gather the information and suggest the proper ways forward. You, you print off this pristine achievement and you hand it to the guy who delivers the internal mail post. Sorry. Uh, as he walks away, your boss enters the room while he's still there and the, the postman stops him and hands him this report and says, I've finished working up all the necessary material for our biggest project. I hope you like it. And you're furious, right? The post just took credit for everything you've done. You secured the good outcome for the project by writing this report. And yet this guy, who is just a tool in delivering it, took all the credit. And we do see something similar at work in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9. The Corinthians had forgotten that their ministers were just tools in God's hands. They forgot that God does all the real work in creating and maturing believers. They had shifted their focus away from God who sovereignly works to save and develop His people to the people whom God used to facilitate His sovereign work. And so we can review that as we have worked through 1 Corinthians, Paul has addressed the issues of divisions in the church. Some of them had aligned themselves with the names of Paul or Apollos or or Peter, Cephas, as if they became superior because they linked themselves to a superior teacher. And so throughout uh, chapter 1, verse 17 to 2, 5, Paul reminded them to put aside this sort of pride because... Everything about Christianity, its message members and ministers, everything is lowly. And we saw then in chapter 2, verses 2 to 16, that human reason can't arrive at the truths that are necessary for salvation, so they have to be revealed by the Spirit. And as we considered the last bit of that chapter, those truths can be received only by those who God called, those in whom God sovereignly worked to enlighten their minds, to make them spiritual people, so to receive spiritual truth. And so the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, is that despite how the Corinthians should have been spiritual people, understanding spiritual truth, they were thinking carnally and could not handle an adult spiritual food. They did not understand that ministers are merely servants through whom God himself works to create and mature Christians. There's no reason to celebrate one teacher over another, especially within the same congregation, because they are all just God's tools to distribute seed and water the plants, but God himself sovereignly causes the growth. So the main point, as we consider this text, 
that God's sovereignty in the church's work teaches us to look to God as master and respect ministers for their given tasks. God's sovereignty in the church's work teaches us to look to God as master and respect ministers in their given tasks. So we're going to think about this in three points. The depictions, the deficiency, and the deliverance. So, the depictions. The, okay, so the reason for reading this whole chapter, even as we focus on the first nine verses, is because the the whole chapter it needs a little bit of introduction. It kind of comes together. So the whole chapter asserts that God is sovereign over his church. And so the Corinthians should should not think themselves wise... So we get to that practical point in the last bit of it. Should not think themselves wise because they had some specific teacher in the congregation. And throughout this chapter, Paul developed four images to depict God's rule over the church and the minister's roles in the church. So to give you an overview of that, in verses 1 to 4, Paul used the image of adoption to show the level of care the Corinthians needed. In verses 5 to 9, he used agriculture to show the relationship between God and the ministers. In verses 10 to 15, he used architecture to relate his own role as an apostle to God and this church. Then in verses 16 and 17, he spoke to the church as the assembly that God built, verses 18 to 23, then apply those principles he'd built throughout the previous verse. So the four images are adoption, agriculture, architecture, and assembly. And tonight we're going to consider adoption and agriculture. All right, so we can turn to our text now, uh, the good Part of this. So Paul often used the first image, caring for children, uh, to show he cared for those under his spiritual care as his children. So we can think of another place, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So when people became Christians, Paul adopted these people as spiritual children to provide for their spiritual needs. And we can think then about how parents should desire to see their kids mature and learn to care for themselves and and handle sort of the bigger issues of life, right? We we want to see them grow and become bigger and better and, and be able to go out on their own. And Paul had that concern for the members of his church. Just... Just like that. But but these Corinthians weren't developing well. Their growth had stunted. He wanted to see them sitting at the the grown-ups table eating solid food, but in fact they still had to have milk like infants. And the reason was that they were thinking like the world. And in this situation, Paul did know that They were Christians. We can see in verse 1, they were infants in Christ. They were in Christ, but their growth was so stunted that that he actually could not speak to them as if they were believers. 
Which is a bit shocking. Their thinking was so warped that they were not considering things even according to basic gospel premises that they had been taught. Instead of prioritizing the message that ministers brought, they were enamored with the prestige of certain leaders. So the adoption image displays the Corinthians' immaturity. And then we can consider verses 5 to 9. Paul changed here to, to talk about the church as God's garden. Importantly, Paul didn't arbitrarily select these images of, of a garden, of a building, and of a temple throughout verses 5 to 17. So uh, I've pointed out with my favorite New Testament scholar is Dr. Bittner, uh, and we're thankful to have him with us. And he outlined in his really good book on 1 Corinthians that Jewish thought had long combined these ideas of, of the garden, of a building, and of a temple together uh, for a long time. So, Jeremiah one ten, we read that chapter for this reason. There, Jeremiah linked the planting and the building metaphor in reference to God's ultimate covenant community, which we know is the church. And Paul described here the church as a temple. So Scripture repeatedly links the ideas of, of gardens and temples together. So we, we can think even of the Garden of Eden. God ruled over that garden, but it actually was also his sacred dwelling place, his original temple. It was a smaller section of the broader world that God had claimed as his own and, and chosen to dwell with his people there. And Adam was the first priest. Israel, as the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, became God's new garden, as in Isaiah 51, verse 3. And God's temple was in Israel, his people. We even did sing in our psalm of how we as the people of God are a plant, his garden. And Paul now spoke of the church, both as God's garden and the temple which God builds. And here we're going to focus on the significance of the church as God's garden. Paul's point was that the Corinthians had forgotten that they are God's field. So not Paul's nor Apollos's. Paul affirmed, verse 4, that to follow your minister for his prestige is to think in a merely human way rather than through the lens of the gospel. And he then affirmed in verse 5 that he and Apollos were both merely instruments God had used to bring them to faith, which means that they are not cause for boasting. God is. Verse 5 says that Paul and Apollos are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And there are a couple of things to, to note here. So, so first, God is the one who divinely assigned each of these men to preach to this congregation according to his will 
as uh, Ephesians 2.10 says, as part of the works he prepared in advance for them do. And secondly, we can think about how ministers are not the focal point of church life, but are simply the instruments that God uses to bring people to faith and mature them in faith. So we wouldn't praise a hammer or a screwdriver. We would praise the carpenter. And so then we should just look to God rather than the minister. The agriculture image mainly emphasizes that God is the one who sovereignly causes growth in his garden. I do anticipate there's probably going to be a joke about how I'm a tool after this. So the depictions, to sum this up, the depictions are the image of adoption in agriculture that Paul used to show the Corinthians that they needed maturity in seeing God as the focus of his church. And that brings us to our second point, the deficiency. So, so we looked first at, at the first two images in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, established, and those images established that this congregation lacked spiritual development and had forgotten that God, rather than flashy ministers, is the church's focus. They were immature, which showed in their concern to, to saddle up with whom they thought was the most gifted leader. And so this point asks us whether we fall prey to the Corinthians' mistakes as well. So we've sort of examined the principles of this text and and worked through it, basically. Now we want to ask, how do we fit into this? And this passage certainly points us to our need for maturity. It's understandable that, that new Christians need lots of help walking through what it means to be a Christian, what we believe and how to live faithfully. I mean, very few people understand that the depths of the gospel as soon as they become Christians or years later. It takes time to grow in deepening our understanding of of what the gospel is. But Christianity is not supposed to be shallow. Just because it takes time doesn't mean we're supposed to stay in the basics. We are supposed to grow in our ability to think in gospel categories, to understand the work of Christ in new and in deeper ways. And so we could think of something like the need for health checkups for little babies. I mean, babies have to be taken to the doctor regularly to make sure that their vital signs are correct, that they're getting the proper nourishment, and that they are gaining weight, growing, uh, like they should be. And if if a baby does not grow like they should, are, that represents a, a real problem. It means something is really wrong, and we need to do something about it. And the point is that that is actually the same with Christians. After our new birth, when God enlightens our minds to believe the gospel, we are supposed to start developing. We never leave the orbit of the gospel just 
Like babies, even as they become adults, never leave the concern to need proper food and growth and vitality. Even though we are always circling around the gospel, though, there's supposed to be ever-increasing depth. So we should ask ourselves, how is our development? And there is indeed a twofold aspect to Paul's concern in verses 6 to 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We, we can relate the tasks of planting and watering in, in some way. I don't want to make this passage sort of allegorical where everything is penned down to specific things, but I think that it is pretty clear that we can sort of associate these planting and watering activities with evangelism and discipleship, laying the first foundations and continuing to grow Christians. And Paul said that he planted the seeds of the gospel, which took root as the Corinthians came to faith, but Apollos followed to nourish those seeds as they grew. So Paul assumed the need for Christians to experience further growth, and that growth in itself was good. We are meant to hit new levels of understanding in the gospel, which is still about Christ. We are not supposed to let ourselves become enamored with our leaders more than with the truth. And so the deficiency is when we quit growing because we become fascinated with distractions rather than with God himself. And that brings us to our third point, the deliverance. So, okay, we saw, to sum up, we saw how God, or saw, sorry, saw how Paul used adoption and agriculture images to indict the Corinthians about their failure to grow. And we saw how it would not be difficult for us to fall into that same trap. And now we need to see that this passage's practical point is that we need to make sure we keep our focus on God. So verses 8 and 9, again, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So because of how Paul is discussing the function of the ministers as tools in God's service to bring people to faith, we might easily overlook the actual deep focus on God himself in these verses. Because ultimately, the description of Paul and Apollos' work points us to what God himself does. We reflected last week on the doctrine of effectual calling, which our catechism says is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening 
our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And we see that again here. Paul's job was to plant gospel seeds, to explain fundamental premises of how to be saved. But Paul cannot make them believe. Only God can. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should believe. The best evangelists will get nowhere if God does not sovereignly convince people through the gospel to believe. God gives the growth to planting. But there's also the need for God's sovereignty in maturing believers. Apollos watered, but God still had to act to make his discipleship, Paulus's discipleship, effective to deepen Christian faith and obedience. So we could think here of Hebrews 6, verse 1 to 3. I'm going to omit sort of the details, but therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, and this we will do if God permits. God gives growth to watering as well. And that, the fact that God is the one who who brings seeds and, and watering to fruition should set before us a magnificent vision of our glorious God who works all things together for His glory and for the good of His people. God who is intimately concerned with the affairs of his people, God without whom our lives and efforts are futile, empty, and worthless. That is who should be set before us at all times. Because without God, we are not even in his garden called the church. We're on the rubbish pile, right? If we are found wanting on the last day, if we, if we have broken God's law in any form or fashion, then we are fit for the burning pile. And God will make compost of us for eternity. But God has indeed grown a garden called the church. A place where rescue from this dire end is offered. The church is God's garden that He grows in the rich soil of the Gospel. Although God owes us His wrath for eternity because of our sin, He sent His Son in our nature to die as our representative so that all who trust in Him would find forgiveness. We are naturally fit as branches to be burned. But God has given His Son to pay for our sin 
earn the right to heaven so that he might make these worthless branches and take them and and transplant them into his garden. Our, Our deliverance is that God has bought us from the threats of hell in his son, Jesus Christ. He has promised us justification as the foundation of eternal life. And he has promised us sanctification so that we might grow unto maturity. He has planted us in his church so that we might live among his people and receive nourishment where Christ is to be found. And let's turn to that Christ now and let's go to God in prayer. Father God, we do rejoice that you do work uh, through your tools. <laughs> we rejoice that you take ministers and and work through the, the work of the church to distribute the gospel, to proclaim your word, and that you make believers out of that, and that you mature believers through that. You're gracious to do so. We don't deserve it. And so we marvel at you and we long, even as we hunger after that ordinary ministry from your word, we long that we would not fixate on the ministry itself and especially not on the minister, but on what that ministry points us towards. And that is you, the triune God, who is the creator of the universe and redeemer of your people. We pray that we would fix our eyes forever on you in all of your majesty as you have presented yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things for his sake, in his name. Amen.